Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Nina Conti is the only child of actors. Her father, Tom, is a Tony Award winner and Oscar nominee. As for Nina, she began her career as an actress at the Royal Shakespeare Company before her mentor, Ken Campbell, convinced her to become a ventriloquist. Nina won the BBC New Comedy Award in 2002, best show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival in 2008, and has performed in many British TV shows since, as well as the HBO comedy series Family Tree with Michael McKean, Christopher Guest, and Chris O'Dowd. She's made two documentaries, Clowning Around, where she trained as a clown performing in a children's hospital, and her master's voice, where she took her mentor's puppets to the official Vent Haven Museum in Kentucky. She spoke to me about vocal and theatrical acrobatics, which she puts on full display with great charm in her new improvised show, In Your Face, at the Barrow Street Theater in New York City for a limited time only. So let's get to it! Nina, thanks for having me here, uh, because I know from watching your show that you could just as easily do this podcast without me. <laughs> An interview myself. Right. I, I mean, have you're done sh- that. Yeah. <laughs> I do that once with Monkey. I mean, in a sense, your show is, is at its heart ventriloquism, but at the same time, it's just you having a running dialogue with yourself. I guess, I guess so. I would hope it was at, uh, at its veneer ventriloquism and at its heart some desperate plea of the soul. <laughs> or some torturous attempt to, uh, I don't know, self-flagellate in public. I don't know why. Well, for, for your version of ventriloquism in particular, I find that it speaks to me as someone who named my website The Comics Comic and has that as my social media presence, mm. that the way that you d- deconstruct it and the way that it's very meta speaks t- to, <laughs> to my essence. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you really are kind of like exploring what does it mean to have conversations with yourself? Yes. and does it- Under the guise of audience members or a When you get or- them to look after you, that's what's really sick. Do you remember we made that at one point? I mean, it was... It wasn't an easy gig last night, but it found its feet through just sheer tenacity by the end. <laughs> but um, scribbles and doodles and imagination. Were, yeah, there were bits. There were bits where I needed a hug, you know. And there was uh, so that one woman that got on stage had her tell me that I was doing very well, but that was my voice. <laughs> so that's sick. But Did I, you remember that I at the time? I it. She said, you're doing well, dear. Don't worry. I made her say that. <laughs> and then she gave me a hug uh, as prompted. But um, yeah. Well, your show and your face uh, in particular, which has brought you back to New York, is unlike any ventriloquism show because it's really just all Im- improvisation. Mm-hmm. Um, where did you get that? idea from to just ditch ditch the ditch the act was it was it something that came out as a as a in the aftermath of doing the documentary yes that documentary got me off script and that that did 
help initially. But the kind of performers that I admired are the ones who put themselves on the line. Um, and it's not exactly improv in that I'm not standing there saying, give me three suggestions and I'll create a scene. It's more like um, a pretty high-wire narration of the chaos that I invite mm -hmm. by having people up there and just letting them be a bit. Although it was interesting at the beginning, wasn't it? Because that first guy was too helpful, wasn't he? <laughs> he was, That's well... That's a new problem. Well, he was a super fan. He, he was a super fan, but there was, he was so on the cues right. for everything I say. I don't know if I ought to explain that I'm putting a mask on somebody and making them talk for listeners that right. don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> so I have a mask on him and I'm making him talk. But he's, he was responding so well that I thought he just looked like a plant. <laughs> and then also there was something about him being so collaborative that it kind of took away anything brave about what I was doing because it seemed just too easy. And then right. I thought, oh, my God, this is really hard. Am I going to have to... Without the challenge. Yeah, I'm going to have to create a difficulty in order to recover from it because this is just too easy. And this is the first act of the night. Where do I go from here? He just wanted to please you. He did. He was very sweet. <laughs> I mean, I can't blame him. <laughs> it's definitely my bad. Is that not what you found over in the U.K.? With the show. I don't know. I was unsettled as well because the size of the audience, and Monkey said this in the middle of the show when mm -hmm. I was hiding in the bag, <laughs> is the same size because I'm in New York and I'm not used to it. This is the size of audience that I would have been getting 10 years ago in the UK. And they've grown. So it's humbling. And I was out here and there was something just about the atmosphere of it that took me back. That You know, I regressed and suddenly felt like a newbie who right. who didn't have anything you know <laughs> at the beginning i was thinking shit i don't have any jokes i have nothing I have nothing for these people <laughs> and there's another voice going you're okay you you play big theaters and you come up with the goods and i'm thinking oh no i've been found out i've got fuck all well when we talked on the phone a few weeks ago uh, you were in your car but it was safe <laughs> i wasn't driving <laughs> you weren't driving um i asked you about your first time to new york were you, mm. did you visit New York or America before you were a performer? Did you come with your parents or? Yeah, I did. I came that? when I was five and I came again with 14, 20, something like that. Yeah, I have been before, but um, it's different every time. Sorry. What, were you what was your, well, what was that? your first impression of America? Well, as a five-year-old, I came and my dad was in a play on Broadway called Whose Life Is It Anyway, which I went to a few times. He won a Tony for that. He did, yeah. Um, so my impression of it then was a very exciting place. Suddenly we seemed to be at the center of the party, although I was only five, I could tell. And we were going out to lots of dinners, and I'd fall asleep under the table um, in restaurants with the feet and listening to the adults talk. That was the first impression of it. It was kind of glamorous party land for a five-year-old to mm -hmm. be hauled along to late nights. <laughs> I, yeah, I loved it. And then when you first came here as a performer yourself, yeah, did you know, did you have a sense of what to expect? Oh, the very first time I came, I was pregnant. And that, uh, that was disappointing to me that I, my first opportunity to New York, I couldn't really party and I was feeling sick all the time. <laughs> um, but what I couldn't believe was how difficult it seemed to be a stand-up here because the minutes are so short. You, you only have a tiny, tiny set. You don't get paid really anything. It seemed like being a comedian out here would be really hard just doing stand-up in the clubs. 
Well, it's not organized like a union. Right. So it's kind of every person for themselves. But is it the same here that you have your 20 minutes? Or is it more like you have a your lot five? of the A lot of the clubs are showcase clubs where you have 15 to 20 minutes. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. Well, I didn't, I, then obviously I didn't go to those. But I was thinking the huge queues of comedians going on to do just a couple of minutes and it seemed like really hard compared right. to in the UK. Yeah. And there seemed like fewer clubs here than there are in London. Definitely. Yeah. yeah Although it's changed quite a bit over the last few years because right. comedy's boomed everywhere. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, in terms of sensibility, I didn't notice a huge difference, although it did seem like maybe over here stand-up was being used as a means to an end to get onto television or something rather than as a thing in itself that you would just want to stay doing. Like people who maybe didn't have a total heart in it were doing it. That's That's usually how people describe the main difference between New York comedy and Los Angeles comedy. Right, right. Yeah. Because New York, they're just doing it to get better as stand-ups. Yeah. Whereas once they move to Hollywood, that's where show business is. So yeah. that's where you go to get seen by the casting people. Yeah, yeah. Or to sign a development deal. Yeah, that's depressing, isn't it? A little <laughs> bit. Yeah. You know, I also, I also, um, I think, I think I have a good awareness of where you're coming from. Uh, one, because I'm a McCarthy. So at an early age, I, I asked my parents about all the famous McCarthys, and I knew uh, I knew which ones were bad and which ones weren't human. Charlie McCarthy was not human. <laughs> and then I'm also an only child. So watching you on stage, moving all the pieces around, having them all speak yeah. in your voice, yeah. different voices, really kind of reminded me of my own childhood in my house by myself wow wow do you think <laughs> although this... i never turned a ventriloquism out of it no. what i i yes maybe so so i'm just creating some brothers and sisters for myself up there some friends well i'm asking you what's i mean you definitely you were brought up in a theatrical household mm-hmm. yeah so you knew about show business and you told me earlier that you were going to be a proper actress yeah, I did think that. And then decided you didn't want the other people <laughs> on stage. That's <laughs> no, what I you do. told me before. Really, th- I but don't what want them really on stage. happened? No, that, well, that is what I said. Oh, no, I love them in the pub afterwards. It's really nice to have other humans to go out with after a show. I think that's really why I was invo- <laughs> excited by acting. Probably wasn't for the actual acting. Uh, yeah, I wonder what I've, I've done here. Talking to dolls did unlock a way of writing and thinking in that I wouldn't have come to just in, on my own mm-hmm. monologuing. I think I said that to you before. Um, also, there's something, it is a thing to hide behind. So it's a smoke screen where you can say lots of things that you don't necessarily mean, or you might, and people are just left get it, guessing. So I find that quite a safe place to play and quite subversive place to play as well um but uh yeah it does it does feel like my playground a little bit and the people are especially this stage show yeah where you actually have full full humans full humans but with your masks and your real control freak as well i mean in a way like that to make people do that right it feels like a big ask in a small especially when you have like multiple people on stage yeah (laughs) but when i came out this like the last show I did in London was at um, the uh, Cardiff Opera House or whatever it's called. It's like almost 2,000 scenes. 
And this, when you say I'm going to use eight or nine of you and put masks on them, that seems like, oh, fine, we're all safe. When I came out here and I saw maybe 40 people, so I'm going to use eight or nine of you, and there's suddenly a quarter of the audience. That, like, everybody's terrified because it could so easily be them. Right. I felt like, oh, no. And everybody thought after the first one, oh, is it a whole hour of this? You mean it's all down to us? Shit, I'd never have come if I'd known. No, it was an hour and a half. It was an hour and a half. <laughs> well, that's how long it took to get it to land. But all of, but all but it of, was, it was all right in the end. Well, and everybody's a willing participant yeah. because they put themselves out there first. Yeah. The people who asked monkey questions. That's true. So it's self-filtering in that right. respect. Yeah, you're not going to get someone who's completely miserable. Right. If you want to hide and be silent, you can do that. Yeah, it's true. You can. It's true. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, how did you decide upon uh, ventriloquism? Because there's other ways to go about it. You could have gone into animation. Yeah. And voice, and voice characters and cartoons. Yeah, I did and... do a bit of character acting and that kind of thing before. Um, well, what happened was I was – I've told this story before, so I always try to rush it or try to make it different or even <laughs> lie to embellish. Um, but I was This at, time, tell the true version. I'll tell the true, true <laughs> version. Um <laughs> So I knew a man called Ken Campbell, and I'd worked with him. He did 24-hour plays, and he was very maverick, subversive, underground, the black sheep of a kind of generation that included John Cleese. So all these people that he worked with really respected him, but he never went the mainstream. So I had been working with him, and then suddenly I got a job at the Royal Shakespeare Company, which was very, very mainstream, and I had to do vocal warm-ups and all this and everybody taking everything terribly seriously, and I really missed him. So at the time, he was writing a book, in the form of a letter to an actress, and he said, if you've got any problems or questions about acting, will you please put them to me on a postcard, and I'll write a chapter based on it. So I wrote, the voice department here at the Royal Shakespeare Company doesn't like my voice. They say they can't listen to it. <laughs> so what do I do? And he, he got very excited about this. He didn't write a chapter and said he phoned me up and he said, I've got the answer to this. I'm going to turn you into a vocal acrobat, but you've got to put a p- couple of hours in every day. Do you promise? And I said, yes, without knowing what I was <laughs> signing up for. The next thing I know, there's a teach yourself ventriloquism kit, which he'd bought from a place in Kentucky, which was a box with 32 booklets and an R stick and a few other gizmos. And a dummy at the stage door. And this was what I had to do. And it was a, like, I think it was a 30 day, uh, book, 30 booklets, 30 days. Mm-hmm. And so I had promised to do that. And Ken was a man that you did not disappoint because he, he took that very harshly. I mean, he would shout at anyone who didn't do things fully and brilliantly. The half ass don't go to heaven in his eyes. Mm. So I had to give it a go, and I filmed myself as proof that, okay, I'm giving this weird thing a go. I've never liked ventriloquism, but I am giving it a go. Here's the proof. And then when I watched that video back, which was really just to get him off my back, I thought, that's curious. It does look like there's two people there. <laughs> And I remember feeling very much like I was doing it all myself. And then watching it back, I thought, but it doesn't look like I'm doing it all myself. <laughs> and so suddenly I was hooked. And that's mm. how I got into ventriloquism. So it was all Ken's fault. Totally Ken's fault. He swerved me. That off. comes out in the documentary. Yeah. Voice. Yeah. Um, and one of the characters, or at least one of the characters, both of them? Wait. Which? What, in the, in the film? No, the uh, granny and Granny monk. and monkey, Yeah. Yeah. They both owe their existence to Ken? Well, no, Monkey's really mine. I found Monkey in a... Um, the granny. The granny is Ken's. Yeah. He had her as Gertrude, uh, Gertrude Stein. 
but uh, I turned her into my granny, but it was his puppet. Mm-hmm. And you had done Edinburgh once or twice as part of an, as an actress before going as a vent. Um, no, I don't think I had really. I'd, I'd just gone a million times and watched things. Okay. Yeah. But I hadn't, no, I hadn't done much acting in Edinburgh, but I had done a few, yeah, I'd done some shows in London, some plays. What was your like first that. Edinburgh show then, proper? Uh, was a, a play written by Ken, a, a one-woman ventriloquial X-rated farce, I think he called it. Um, so that was a written script that had a, had a fourth wall. And I was doing all the characters, but it was kind of a play. And it did feel like I was ignoring the audience. And it felt like the, media, the, the medium of ventriloquism and everything really, I felt like the puppets really wanted to look out through the wall and talk to the people in the room, not just pretend we were all there together. So that's what led me then on to doing stand-up with it. Did you have a sense of how, how people would receive your act in terms of the broader genre? Very. Uh, it, it was a baptism of fire, really, because I thought, oh, what I'm doing is really different and fun and people might like it because mm-hmm. it's not just, you know, guy after guy, a man and a mic doing that thing. Right. And, uh, but then, so I, I went on and I did okay with the audience, but I just was unpopular and felt really, really uncool with the other stand-ups because it was <laughs> like, well, you've got a monkey. You know, like it's easy for you or something. It's, it wasn't re, it wasn't real or it wasn't purist what I was doing. It felt like, uh, I was cheating or something. I was made to feel like I was cheating, which was, yeah, which I did really feel uncool about that. But at the same time, I was saying, well, if it's, if it's funny, you know, right. you can get your own monkey. <laughs> <laughs> but also it's just the right pen for me. It's the, but it's, the thing for me that right. I prefer and the thought of me doing stand-up without it that, sound, that feels to me like a subtraction I can't think of anything that I could say that the monkey couldn't top I just think that it's a kind of a powerful tool for comedy and a very deadpan face there's well, no think, need in him well I think because because you, you know you say before or you hear plenty of ventriloquists say that part of it is that they say the things that you that you might want to say but are too afraid to, or mm. it allows a different character to say things that you wouldn't normally. But with, but with you in particular, it seems more like a like a duo, like a two person or one woman mm. one monkey act. Mm. Yeah, it we're is. having more of a conversation. You mean I'm present? It's the, not all about monkeys. You're definitely present. Am I? Yeah. I wonder but about monkey that. But monkey is present too. Yeah, no, I definitely. I would whereas, say he was dominant. Whereas if you, if you look at the, the popular ventriloquists now, Jeff Dunham, Terry Fader, like Terry Fader is on, he's in Las Vegas with a huge casino act. Wow. But his is all based around, uh, music and, and songs. And yeah. He's an amazing and, singer. Yeah. You know, and then Jeff Dunham has his outrageous dummies. Mm-hmm. And it's all about, oh, can you believe what they're saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but they, but they invite different criticism than, which, which kind of gets at the whole genre as a whole. Yes, mine is more, I suppose mine more looks like a, a relationship with myself. Right. Rather than a character, because you kind of know that monkey's really me too more. Is that possible? Well, you let people in on it. Yeah. It no, might be subtle. It's true. Yeah, no, I think it's true. I think it's true. I think it is me. I think monkey's more me than I am. 
with the surname of the stage me is. Right. Yeah. I think. It's your id. Yeah. He's like you get if you know me really well. If I'm not just meeting friends or in a social environment. Or sitting with a journalist. Or sitting a, with a journalist and I'm, theater. yeah, listen to me whispering on and being into sort of semi-intellectual about what I do. I mean, it's kind of gross. Whereas Monkey would be, I mean, yeah, more honest. <laughs> I'm not being dishonest. But, but if... Less wittering. Well, if, if the first time you, you played Edinburgh, you realized how uncool you were, did you... Did you have a broader knowledge of how people perceived ventriloquism before you plunged into it? Yeah. Or did well, you learn afterward well, the it was, history and the yes, I didn't the, where it, where it stacked up in the broader realm of comedy? I learned that once I started doing it. Yeah, I didn't really know much about ventriloquism until after I was already doing it, and then I looked into it. But ventriloquism has always been quite meta, I think. And um, people say that what I do is very deconstructive, but I think you can see that back in Charlie McCarthy and so on, some of that. Bit of it. You mean certainly. Edgar Bergen? Yes. <laughs> I do, sorry. Who's running the Mortimer's show? Mortimer's <laughs> nerd. Um, he had a nice relationship with his puppets in a way. That was, looked like a relationship rather than just a, a vehicle for a character. Right. Well, maybe not. I don't know. I don't know not that well. But um, no, I was going to say it was one. It, it, it was one battle winning over the audience when you go into a pub and you get a teddy out your bag and they think, "What's this girl with a teddy doing? This is going to be awful." Mm-hmm. Not this teddy. It's a monkey, but still, it's like right. a cuddly toy. You think, "Geez, somebody." If you're just a patron in the pub. You don't know. What's no, going you'd on. be deeply worried if you saw that. <laughs> so, oh, this is going to be awful. So, but then it, winning them over was one thing, but then I realized, oh my God, it's not about that. It's that I'm just uh, not cool on the circuit because I'm a special act. Do you have that term over here? Uh, people talk about prop comics. Yeah, and right. Yeah. Yeah. Magicians. Yeah. And- so, but then I had to do all that soul searching and make a real art house documentary. There's something else and- going on. Yeah. I, I mean, Where I it's kind not of- just you and the microphone. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, you need a crutch. I you guess. need a crutch. Exactly. Exactly. That's it. I know. So that, that's why I went off, off the deep end art house with my <laughs> film and everything. I thought maybe they'll find there's some integrity there well, in spite it, of the props. But it also reminds me like Jay Johnson was in the film. Mm-hmm. And he, I remember when I was a child, I remember seeing the, the TV show Soap that he was on. Yeah. And going, oh, this is different. Yeah. And there was Willie. But he did a good show. He did a good play and Lester. got a Tony Award for it, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, there were, there was always a popular ventriloquist mm-hmm. act that you would see in TV commercials or. Yeah. Cameos in movies and TV shows. But always just one, I think. Yeah. Never, never more than one. No, no. <laughs> yeah, which, I was the one in which, Family which, Tree. Which made it, which, yeah, you were the one in Family Tree, the HBO Imagine show. There were two. Which made it, uh, which made it good to see in your documentary when you go to the convention and you realize, oh, there's, they're everywhere. There's an explosion. I wonder <laughs> what the collective noun is of ventriloquists. A chaos of ventriloquists. Or, uh, a, um, an illness of ventriloquists. <laughs> Yes, there were there were hundreds, and it was really fun to go out there and meet my family, as it were, to realize oh, there are, there are more of me across the pond. Uh, there are people that you can talk about 
you know, the little screw inside the mouth that mm-hmm. doesn't open right. What do you do? Well, I use this and I buy it from here. You could, they're all having those kind of conversations out there. It's quite sweet. Did it make you feel cooler or still uncool? I will never feel cool. <laughs> I think it would actually be kind of revolting to feel cool. <laughs> that's, um, only, that's what a cool person says. No. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> You've answered correctly. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, even though you said you came out here on stage here at the Barrow Street Theater and you felt like you had subtracted, gone backward 10 years, mm. but at the same time, you look at, at Jeff Dunham has graduated from comedy clubs to theaters to arenas. Terry Fader is selling out Las Vegas Casino Resort. There's an audience mm-hmm. out there mm-hmm. for this uncool thing. How can so many people be wrong? <laughs> How can so many people be uncool? Or yeah, what, what is it? What does it take for this for the rest of show business to give you respect or give the genre respect? Is it? Is there a difference in your mind? Um, with whatever, for the genre of ventriloquism to get respect, oh, I don't know. I don't think you, I don't know if a genre in itself deserves respect. I think you have to just look at the art within that genre and respect it or not. Really? I don't know. You said we should respect all painting for virtue of it being painting. I don't think so. Well, that's why I ask whether it's more important for the genre or for you individually. For me, I don't. I, I kind have... of, yeah. No, it's much more important for me and the the content of my shows. And actually, the ventriloquism, I do, you know, that's what it is. That's what got me in the door to this show. But I don't actually think that's what anybody's laughing at about this show. I think people are laughing at the... The, the natural clown that an audience member becomes when their when their face is taken away, <laughs> right? Um, and to, they're watching, they're enjoying watching me struggle and putting myself in the shit and watching me try to smile my way out of it. And because um, <laughs> you can't move your lips, because you can't move your lips. Um, yeah. So and and also just like how how do you shape a thing that has no script? I think those are the things that probably people are enjoying about the show rather than the fact that my lips aren't moving. Right. It's, your show is vocal acrobatics, theatrical acrobatics. Mm, mm. I would hope so. So, um. Clowning. It is. It, talk it, about it, it as a ventriloquism of- show. Yeah. I think it's more clowning. I've done a lot of clown stuff recently and improv stuff. No, actually, I actually haven't done any, not a single improv course <laughs> we're talking about. That was a barefaced lie. But, <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of clowning has, has also. That you can see that in the show, I think. If you've done clown, you'd recognize that I'm using a lot of those techniques. Did you study with any famous? Yeah, Golier and, yeah, Philippe Golier. Have you interviewed him? No, not no. yet. Oh, he's fantastic. Have you watched uh, the the new television show that Zach Galifianakis stars in, Baskets? No, I haven't seen it. No. He plays a gentleman. He He went to France to study clowning, and he couldn't get any work and he comes back to the states and he ends up working as a rodeo clown oh right which doesn't mesh at all with his professional training (laughs) well i spent two years being a hospital clown in children's hospitals and i made a documentary about that 
So in order to try and be good at that, I did a lot of clown workshops. Yeah. Did you ever think of ditching the the vent stuff for? Oh uh, yeah, I had to. Money? I had to. It was tough. It was put me well out of my. But do you ever think about zone. that now? Uh, doing yeah, it, yeah, I do. Going I mean, full I like clown. Going full clown, yeah, it's it does it does intrigue me, and I am kind of addicted to the pain that clowning. The pain or the paint. The pain. <laughs> The pain of clowning, because it is painful, and I find it fascinating to watch people struggle, and it's funny. And I think just trying, knowing that being good is not going to help you, you, like celebrating being bad, that's that's what works in those things, in a way. Because if you're trying to look clever, Mm -hmm. or you've got all your good ideas, it's not, um, that's not welcome in clown. You have to really be in the shit <laughs> and be optimistic in it. The closest I came was uh, I spent a summer, uh, I guess, semi-professional <laughs> as a clown Yeah. for a company in Seattle. And they just supplied clowns for birthday parties and company picnics. Right. So that's, that's not quite that's the same. Kind of thing. It's a different kind of clown. No, this is more like the theater like- practice of clown. <laughs> Right, the clowning I did was uh, balloon animals. Oh, that kind of clowning, yeah, yeah, yeah. And child management. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I did in hospitals, actually. Yeah, but um, yeah, low status, all that kind of thing. I think it's quite interesting to walk on a stage with nothing, and oh, that's that's painful, and good, fascinating. And as soon as you drop your act, that's when you're funny. Well, that's what that's what. You know, when people discuss improv, you know, you want to talk about uncool, ask stand-up comedians what they think about improv performers. Oh, really? Because they normally just think of when it goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if you're out there without a net, it can it can crash quite easily. Yeah, I, can't, I guess so. They don't think about the ones who are really good at it. Yeah. The ones who are confident enough to... No, it's like Zen yeah, art yeah. form if you're really good at it, isn't it? I mean, it's amazing. But um, yes, I know what you mean. And and sometimes, you know, there are de- dividends from having no script because the audience think you're clever with whatever you come out with and it's not really as good as what people would write. But the really good improv is as good as people would write. Because you're, you're getting to that pure in the moment. Mm-hmm. Of it, You're li- it involves listening, and then crafting on the spot, and that's and people reward that because they go, oh, that definitely just happened. And I, I, there's a thing which I love, which is the 50-hour improvathon. There's one coming up in London quite soon, and I did a little radio program about it called Finding My Lizard Lizard Brain, because they stay up 50 hours on the trot doing an improvised drama, mm-hmm. and something happens and somewhere in the 38th hour or something when they all discover their lizard brain and suddenly there's no performance anymore. It's more, you're just being and it gets really interesting, the acting round about then because there's, there's no self-consciousness by then. They've all gone into a different gear. That's also, I, I believe, the main philosophy uh, when you talk to documentary filmmakers is they go, well, we, we spend time filming people but we know we're not going to use the first 
few hours of it because people are conscious of the cameras and the crews. Yeah. But you just keep the cameras rolling and eventually they forget. Yeah. And then they just are. Yeah, and then they just are. And then yeah. they're just naturally performing instead of performing to the cameras. That's what happens in the Improvathon. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> I love it. I love settling in knowing that you're going to be there for 50 hours. <laughs> And that everybody on stage is going to be away for 50 hours. It's exciting. You think you're going to witness all kinds of madness and you just, like, you know, you're in a good place there. <laughs> There's nowhere else I'd rather be. Uh, what's the longest show you've done? I did a 24 hour play called The Walk with Ken Campbell and I was sort of the main wife of the lead in that. So I, yeah, I was there from beginning to end and I loved doing that. And that was something that was really uh, uh, based on spirit. People turning up and um, <laughs> actors doing all the crafting of the set and everybody, it was like actor management, everybody who was in it had to mm. contribute to the staging and people did it for no money and it just for the love of the thing. It was, it was a really fun production. Um, not to completely segue out of fun, but um, <laughs> Donald, uh, you're probably going to get more than one Donald Trump question. Ah, oh, yeah. You did last night. Yeah, I did. Um, but after, after thinking about it for a moment, I recall in one of the debates, uh, Hillary Clinton accused Donald Trump of being a puppet mm. for Vladimir Putin. Ah. <laughs> and it got me thinking about whether, whether, you know, you're using people as puppets, but with a mask. Do you see, <laughs> do you see, when you, as an outsider, when you look at some, someone like a Trump. God, is there another one somewhere? <laughs> someone like a Trump? Yeah. But is it possible for a person to be used like a dummy or a puppet? Oh, see? everyone is. Every marriage. Oh, I think in marriage, particularly, you can see puppetry going on. <laughs> People behaving like they, oh, within the confines of their marriage, the things that are acceptable to say in, in dinner conversation mm -hmm. or something, you know, no one's really totally themselves because they're in their contract <laughs> of who they are together. Mm. I'd call that a form of puppetry, ventriloquism. Do you ever find that you're the puppet in your relationships? I'm sure, yeah, definitely. I'm probably a different puppet for each person, different puppet for my mum, my dad. Does that, does that, do you find that to be ironically freeing for you since you're normally the one pulling the strings or moving the lips? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I, I think we're all many people. Because we're different with everybody that we're with a little bit. And then, so all those different people I somehow get to throw into other people that are on the stage. But is that true? I don't know. It just sounds <laughs> neat. I'm not sure how true it is. And those people on the stage, that, those characters, I mean, the woman who was talking about, um, what was she saying? Doodles, scribbles, the imagination. She was, uh, you know, is that... 
yeah, is that me really? Yeah, I guess it is. I don't know. I just love that it's dumb. I love that as soon as somebody's on there and they're not really a real person anymore, they're allowed to be dumb and repeat the same thing ten times until it's, it really shouldn't be funny anymore, and yet it still is. And it's nobly idiotic because they're not real and no one chose to, to be there or for this to happen. <laughs> then you can celebrate in that stupidity. So <laughs> that's what I really like. It's a good license for moronacy. And we're all the better for it. I, I would hope so. What, um, at, at this point in your career, what do you find is help? Are there people or, or things that you read that's, that's good counsel or advice? It's good. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I was enjoying the... Um, Bad lip reading Yoda song the other day. <laughs> I mean, my kids and I were watching it, and I was just thinking how how noble that is because it's so it's so kind of off topic, and I don't know. He just sings about daft stuff, and it's uh, accidental because those are the words that would fit into those mouths. So right. you end up with something accidental, semi sensible, and just sort of out of left field, and. I, and the amount of joy that brings when everybody's busy trying to be clever all the time and reading books to improve themselves, the amount of joy that that brings when something's just daft, I find that, I find that quite inspiring. It's also like the undercurrent of what's in your head on day to day. You know, you have a bit of a song or you have a, just a kind of drum flots and, and sure. jetsam of the mind. Yeah. And so when you see something that tunes into that kind of not really thought through stuff, it can feel right. So you like being thrown off. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Well, as a newbie, I spent a lot of time trying to write shows that would make me look clever. Um, and that, that's boring. Mm. It's not clever. How clever can you ever be anyway? Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, what, what <laughs> advice would you give someone who's brand new to the stage and they come up to you after a show and they say, Nina, please tell me how do I get to be like you or how do I get to be me? What's the first thing you would tell someone? I think you kind of want to sort of brew yourself in your own juice so that you become properly individual and spend time on your own playing, filming, that kind of thing. Not all for transmission on Facebook or anything hideous like that, but just stewing in your own juice for a while and just keeping talking. I think that's quite good advice. That is good. I think people, no, especially in, you know, you mentioned Facebook, but especially in this age where we feel like we have to document everything as it happens. Mm. We don't need to see what your first attempt at stand-up comedy is or your first attempt. Yeah. I mean, you made a video for Ken because he asked you to. Yeah. But if people aren't asking you to, you don't need to show them all of your first no. well, also slapdash experimental things. You can no, take some time to, to figure it out. You can, and but don't do it with showing in mind, maybe. I don't know if that's true. But, I mean, the film I made with Ken, which is probably the thing I'm most proud of i didn't make it with him he was dead by then but it, you know i made it with him right. it, with him alongside me in my mind um i made that whether or not anyone was ever going to see it. i made it for its own sake so that's always 
you know, if it, if you're doing it for its own sake rather than because it's going to, I don't know, further you or whatever. Or be, how well, you, I meant the very first film you made. Oh, yes, the very first <laughs> the film. Very yeah, first yeah, film. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when he gave you the objects and said, yeah. let's see what you do. Yeah. Well, both in a way. But now everybody seems to want to put that first effort online and become a YouTube star overnight. Yeah, I know. Not I realizing know. that people will go, well, this first effort is rubbish. I know. I mean, everyone likes voyeurism, like to peek into a, a grotty little world of somebody's own grubby humanity that's not, you know, not for show. Mm -hmm. But just the social media makes everybody, I don't know, samey a little bit, maybe. Oh, that's not true. There are people who, who go against it. But you know what I mean? If no, it's all about transmission. There's not enough brewing going on. Yeah. Mm. Well, and it was all that brewing that that gets you to learn all the skills that you can now come out on stage without a script. Yeah, maybe. You couldn't do that initially. Oh, I couldn't have done it ten years ago. God, yeah. no. No, I wouldn't have had the so, bottle. Thank goodness you brewed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Nina, I uh, I would love to sit and chat with you more, but you have to do another show. I do. So I should let you go. Thank you so much. <laughs> but it's been really nice talking to you. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. <laughs> this episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.